Good morning, everybody. To join is an honor and it's a privilege to be here together as we consider the Word of God today. Before we jump into our text for the morning, I want to read to you the very last of the Psalms as an encouragement to us in what we have just done. Psalm 150 says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heaven. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellence. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. I want to encourage our music ministry team. They have been doing such a good job of every week preparing, organizing, structuring, and preparing their gifts, their spiritual um, gifts of music so that they can come and serve us and lead us in worship. Can we just thank them and encourage them for helping us in that way? But I also want to acknowledge that the most important instrument in this room is the one that God made. That is your voice. He has given you a voice in order to worship Him. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. None of these instruments have breath, but you do, and you are called to use it for the glory of God to sing to Him. So I want to give you just a couple of very important, very brief encouragements as we think through how to do this well here at our church. The first one is, when we are singing, to make sure that you are actually thinking about what we are singing. Don't just sing it and ignore the words, but actually let them engage your mind and your heart. We intentionally choose songs that are as theologically clear and straightforward and accurate as possible because we believe that it's more than just the music and the melody that matters. It truly is what we are saying. Uh, secondly, I want to encourage you to ensure that you don't think less of this part of the service, the musical part of the service, but to ensure that you do your very best to be here on time, even early, so that the time we hit that first note, your voice is joining along with us. And finally, I want to encourage you, if you um, even if you're not going through the weekly worship guide as, um, as your Bible reading, I want to encourage you to sign up for that and download that every week, because as part of that weekly worship guide, Every song that we sing on Sunday mornings is included in that family worship section. So the links to the YouTube videos that we are going to be singing these songs, you can prepare so that you know these words, you know them, these songs, before you even get here. So I want to encourage you to do that so that you're never trying to learn these songs as we're singing them here, but that you already know them and you can join with the chorus of the saints and call out to the Lord that He is good and that His love endures forever. With all of that said, let me ask that you now turn your attention to your Bible. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13 today. We're continuing to follow the saga of Israel, transforming from the period of the judges and shifting now into the time of being a full-fledged kingdom. Saul has been anointed as king, he has been crowned as king, and he has even had a major victory over the Ammonites against that great and evil king Nahash. He is now, however, going to face his greatest enemy yet. If you look to the text with me, you'll see that chapter 13, verse 1 begins this way. Saul lived for one year 
and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns, and some of the Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Saul's, uh, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Let the Hebrews make themselves swords, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshares, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle, and the charge was two thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. On the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we acknowledge that there is a great deal of information in a passage like this one. And Lord, we ask that by your mercy, you would clarify for us what it means. We ask right now, Lord, acknowledging that 
you and you alone can give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and you and you alone can bring conviction and growth. And so we ask, Lord, that through the preaching and proclamation of your word today, you would cause us to be transformed. By your Holy Spirit, would you indeed do a good work in the people today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In order to best break down what is going on here in this very exhaustive chapter, we're going to consider this in four pieces. Saul's duty, Saul's distress, Saul's disobedience, and Saul's discipline. But before we even broach that subject, I think there's something really important that we need to address. Perhaps some of you in the room already have noticed that verse 1 may look different in your copy of the Scriptures than what I read. In fact, if you are looking at a version that is not the ESV, you'll notice that it might have said something different. In the English Standard Version, it says, Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he reigned for two, and he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now, what this means is that uh, he had basically waited one year from either the victory over Nahash or one year from the actual uh, time when everybody had gathered together to cast lots for him to be king. Perhaps that's what this means. However, if you're looking at another translation, you may notice in your copy of the Scriptures that it's a little bit different. For example, the NIV says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Now, I don't have to tell you, when you have something that is this different in different versions, there's something strange going on there. Now, this is a really debated, debated verse, both because it's difficult to translate, but also because there are some conflicts in the ancient manuscripts that we have regarding this passage. Uh, so perhaps the NIV version is more accurate. Perhaps the ESV version is more accurate. I'm not really sure. But I do want to take a moment just to speak to the nature of this kind of textual criticism. You see, there is a handful of places when the Bible's oldest and most reliable documents are slightly different from one another. Usually those things are different in terms of there being an and or a but that are interchanged or something like that. However, not only are these occasions very rare, they only exist in situations like this one where they do not change the doctrinal teachings of the church at all. For example, in this chapter... I'm not confident which translation is correct, but whether it's supposed to say that Saul started when he was 30 or that he waited a year to actually set up his government, that makes very little difference. What is truly amazing is that God has preserved his word so thoroughly through the ages that almost every single word of this book and every other book of the Bible matches so perfectly in all of the manuscripts that we have. That is a level of precision and accuracy that is not found in any other writing, in any other ancient literature of any other book. So I just want to encourage you. We can trust the Word of God. It is true. So with all that down, let's now think about Saul's reign as king, starting with Saul's duty. Let's do a very brief review of what Saul has been chosen to do. What is his job description? If you remember from the people's perspective... They wanted a king like what? Like the nations. They wanted a king who would go before them and who would fight their battles for them. They wanted a warrior king. And they didn't ask for a king because they were excited for taxes. They were asking for a king because they thought that this was going to be the best bet they had to protect them against the Philistines. Now, they wanted a fighter. But it's also important to see that 
God chose Saul. He is the one who connected Samuel with Saul through those very interesting providential means. He's the one that handpicked Saul to do this job. And it's very important that you see how God first informed Samuel and what God told Samuel that Saul's job would be. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And here's the kicker. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So you see what's taking place here. God set Saul apart so that he would protect and deliver them from the Philistines. But there were also stipulations put in place regarding how that was supposed to play out. You see, after Samuel anointed Saul, he told Saul exactly what was going to take place. If you remember, it seems like Saul was hesitant or resistant to the idea of being king. And then Samuel says, look, you're going to leave here. Here's the people that you're going to meet. In fact, here's what they're going to be carrying. Some of them are going to have musical instruments. This is what they're going to say. And then he even goes so far as to say to, to Saul, and even you, Saul, are going to prophesy among, among them and with them. So he tells Saul exactly what's going to take place. And then at the conclusion of all of those things, Samuel said this to Saul. He said, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. You see, this was the one part of the prophecy that was not fulfilled immediately in that chapter. Everything else took place very rapidly, but this one piece of it was not an immediate prophecy. It's something that he said, when this occurs, when you end up at Gilgal, when you are stationed there, your job is to wait. Just wait. That's it. Just wait. That's your job. Go there and wait for me for seven days. And as we're going to see, that command is going to prove incredibly difficult for Saul to obey. But that's not all that Saul was commanded to do. If you have your Bible open, turn back one page to chapter 12 for just a moment. Look at verse 14. Here, Samuel is confronting all the people of Israel for demanding a king. And he said, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. That's the stipulations. Those are the requirements. Notice that this is a conditional promise. It will go well with you insofar as you are obedient to the Lord. And Samuel is clear that the king has an outsized role and responsibility here. Verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now jump down to verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Every time we come up against Saul's job description, it is this very simple rule. Just obey what God tells you to do. And what has God told him to do in the situation we find ourselves in today? Very simply, just wait. Which brings us to our second point, Saul's distress. 
The author John Barth once said, everyone is necessarily the hero in his own story. Now, when he made that claim, he went on to explain, like, look, there's this background character in the story of Shakespeare's Hamlet, and that guy felt like he was the main character in the story. To him, he wasn't a background character. He was the main plot of the story. However, that idea has been pushed even farther in modern storytelling to such an extent that most books and most movies and most shows that are being written are not only designed to present multiple points of view, but they are also designed to ensure that every single character exists in a state of being perpetually morally gray. There are no villains in most storylines anymore. If there is a villain character presented, the author must always be sure to give you a glimpse into their tragic backstory so that you are able to identify with them and sympathize with them. It has to make sense why they would choose to be so wicked. Now, I will make a caveat. The only time in modern storytelling where this does not seem to be true is if there is a Christian or, in particular, a pastor being presented. They are always bad, and there's no reason given. There's a lot of detail in this chapter, and it's all here to help us understand why Saul jumped the gun and why he felt such a pressure to perform this sacrifice without Samuel. Let's see how this war was sparked, starting in verse 2. It says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now, we can think of this like Saul's standing army. In the previous battle, if you remember, the battle against Nahash, the serpent king, Saul had an army of 330,000 troops, literally more than 100 times the size of his current force. It would have been impossible for Saul to bankroll that many soldiers, so instead he kept the 3,000 soldiers that he felt would best suit his purposes, and notice that he fulfills the promise that Samuel made that he would take of their sons and he would make them soldiers. He does it right away. Now here are, we are introduced to another character, a very important character in the story, and that is Jonathan. And we don't learn a lot about Saul's son, Jonathan, yet, only that his father had entrusted him to lead a garrison of a thousand men. Now, let's pause for a second and think about this. If the first verse of this chapter is saying that Saul was 30 when he became king, and if these events take place in rapid succession after that event took place, then it would indicate that Jonathan's pretty young here, and he's in charge of a thousand Soldiers. Now, some scholars and historical authors, especially the ancient writers and commentators on this text, would argue that Saul has at this point in the story actually reached the age of about 40, and his son Jonathan was between the ages of 18 and 20. So this guy, Jonathan, is about 20 years old, most likely, and he's already in charge of a thousand men. Now, we're not going to say much about Jonathan this week, but I want you to know that he is going to be shown throughout this book to be one of the most godly examples in the entire Old Testament. But what we see right out of the gate is that he's a good leader and he's a good soldier. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrisons of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now, perhaps you noticed that the Philistines have been 
pretty quiet in this book for quite a while. In fact, the last time that they had made some kind of a serious role in the book was when they had fought against Israel and then taken the ark into their own land. And you'll remember, God gave them all these nasty tumors. Not sure exactly what they were, but whatever they were, they were disgusting and killing people. And so they were very happy to get that out of their own land and send it right back into the hands of the Israelites. And since then, nothing has happened. And so we're looking at a time period of around 50 years where there has been no warfare whatsoever. Maybe more time than that has even elapsed. But that doesn't mean that the Philistines had actually left the Israelites alone. Remember, the Lord said to Samuel, He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. That seems to be interesting to me because that's the exact phrase that God used of the Egyptians when he told Moses, Go and deliver them. So how exactly were the Philistines abusing the Israelites here? Well, the end of the chapter identifies that there was a kind of cold war that was being played out in the realm of economics and agriculture. You see, the Philistines had arrived from the Greek islands, and with them they had brought modern technology and ironwork. They were slightly ahead on the tech tree, and it showed big time. That was part of the entire region of the Middle East there, moving out of the Bronze Age and into the Iron Age. But the Philistines they also remained ahead on that tech tree by intentionally repressing the Israelites and ensuring that no one in Israel could have a blacksmith shop. Now, we don't know exactly what that looked like. Maybe there was an embargo. Maybe they would go burn one down every time they tried to build it. We don't know exactly how it looked. All we know is the motivation behind it. The Philistines' reason for eliminating all of the Israelite smithies was this— lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. We just cut out any opportunity for them to arm themselves. So the Israelites were required to pay exorbitant prices in order to have any of their metal tools created, created or repaired. And moreover, it left Israel defenseless in battle. Verse 22, So on the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. So Saul and his army of roughly 3,000 men, and only two of them had metal weapons. Hold on to that idea for a couple of chapters because that's going to display in an even more powerful way what it means when David refuses the armor and the weapons of Saul and instead goes out there with a common instrument, the sling, and fights Goliath. Now, regardless of their small numbers and their meager weaponry, Jonathan was still able to take this band of a thousand men and go and fight off a garrison of Philistines. But instead of rejoicing, it caused the people of Israel to fear. Why? Because they knew you've poked the bear. This animal has been sleeping for 50 years and you just went and stabbed him in the face. And now they feared reprisal and retaliation and retribution. Verse 4, and all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And all the people were called out to Saul at Gilgal. Now first, I hope you noticed this. Did you see who gets the credit for defeating that garrison? It's not Jonathan. He's never mentioned. No, no, no. The name that is called out amongst the land is that Saul gets the credit. He defeated them. 
Jonathan is the one who led the troops against the Philistines, but it's actually Saul whose name gets shouted from the rooftops. Now again, remember that in a couple of chapters because Saul is going to start to get really jealous when somebody else starts to get the credit and these young ladies start writing songs about David instead of about him. Now, secondly, from this verse, notice that the Israelites had just provoked a stronger nation to war, and the public began to be terrified. So when Saul called everyone to Gilgal, he does not get the same response that he had when he had created that draft to fight against Nahash. Remember, 330,000 men came to fight alongside of him. Verse 5, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling. Look, war is a terrible thing. It is a horrific, disgusting thing, and it is filled with atrocities. Atrocities that nobody should ever endure or even imagine. And the Israelites, who had just seen a great victory against the Ammonites, saw that there was now a much more powerful army, and instead of standing to fight, they ran in fear. They were literally living like animals in order to avoid the pillaging that they anticipated. The Philistines had a reputation for extreme brutality, and they didn't want to be anywhere near it. It says a seemingly large number of the population abandoned their land and their families, and they just moved out of Israel into the land of Gilead, which is a land that they had just taken, by the way, from the Ammonites a couple chapters ago. So not very many people were with Saul. People think about this. It literally says they went out and they were hiding like they were animals in the cliffs and in the rocks and in the graveyards and in tombs and in cisterns. Why does it give us all of those details? The point is, look, they were, they were trying to find anything that would protect them. They would go anywhere that they could escape the wrath of the Philistines. But it's a lot worse than that. Verse 11, Saul is going to tell Samuel, that the people were scattering from him. Look down to the second half, actually, of verse 15. It says, And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. So he starts with 3,000. By the end of this ordeal, he's down to 600. Why? Because the people began to scatter, as it says there in verse 11. So get the picture. Saul is at Gilgal. He starts out there with 3,000. He makes a call to the nation, expecting to have hundreds of thousands more come. But instead, they begin to leave him in droves, and he's just waiting. And the Philistines, they have an army breathing down his neck. They have 30,000 chariots, which is like the ancient equivalent to a tank. And Israel has two swords and two spears among them. And Saul, he's, he's just waiting. And Saul doesn't inspire any confidence in the people. Verse 7 says, Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling, the people were terrified. They were outgunned and outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. But day after day, Saul just kept waiting. And in verse 8, when he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
over the course of a week, instead of rallying around him, literally 80% of his soldiers abandoned him. And what is he doing? He's just waiting. Now, I wonder what that looked like when they were all scattering. Did they sneak away shamefully in the middle of the night? Did Saul just wake up and there's a fewer, less, there's less tents out there every morning? Or did they confront Saul? Did they point out the insanity of fighting a force that's more than 10 times your number? Did they all leave at once? Did they trickle away? We don't really know. All we know for sure is that Saul is feeling immense pressure to do something. And he's just waiting. This was the appointed day when Samuel was supposed to arrive. Seven days. But he doesn't show up. And the clock is ticking. And he doesn't show up. And Saul is watching his watch. And he is sweating. And Samuel doesn't show up. And Saul is probably thinking, when is that guy going to finally get here? I can't wait much longer. These people are deserting me constantly. So he held out as long as he thought he could. But when he watched man after man turn tail and run, he decided... I have to take matters into my own hands. Point three, Saul's disobedience. Verse nine. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Earlier I spoke about the idea of a sympathetic villain. The idea that says the only reason that people are bad is due to external events that shape them. Well, what if I told you there is something even worse than that trend in storytelling? It's the trend to make the bad guy the main character and try to get the audience to root for them. This is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on in Hollywood, for example, since the 60s with fan favorites like Bonnie and Clyde or the original Ocean's Eleven. The first movie couple, Bonnie and Clyde, that you celebrated, they were enemies of the state. They murdered 13 people. They robbed a bunch of banks and everyone cheered for them. Ocean's Eleven is about a mobster who is released from prison and he collects a bunch of criminals to go rob casinos. They're bad guys, but everyone roots for them. Now, I want you to be really careful here. When we're reading this text, we are not supposed to sympathize with Saul. Don't look at him as a villain shaped by his circumstances and don't look at him as somebody who could be excused because of all of the things going on around him. Don't view him as a sympathetic leader who simply did the best that he could until it wasn't viable in his eyes any longer to obey. Let me be very clear. There is never a time when disobeying God is rational, logical, reasonable, or justifiable. Saul's job was simple. Wait! Just wait. Now, there's a really interesting parallel that plays out here between Saul and Adam and Eve. Theologians are quick to point out the language here seems to be intentionally paralleled between these two events. Now, I'm going to do my best to point that out in a moment, but let me first say, before we even get into what it means, it does not just mean that these words were written in such a way to link these two events together. It means that even in the moment... When they were occurring, even when this conversation took place between Saul and Samuel, that in the mind of Samuel, he recognized and understood that what Saul was doing was to be connected to and paralleled with 
exactly what took place in Genesis chapter 3. He borrowed that language as the man of God who spoke the word of God and who knew Genesis 3 better than probably anyone alive in the land at that time. It was no accident that he is going to take language directly from Genesis 3 and he is going to describe Saul's rebellion in identical terms to what Adam and Eve had done. Let's see what that looks like now starting in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Now, do you recognize that scenario? That as soon as Adam and Eve had sinned, they, they recognized, they heard the sound of him in the garden. And the question that God asks is, what have you done? And notice that just like when the Lord asked Eve that question and her response was to pass the blame, Saul is also going to make excuses. Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down to me against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the face of the Lord. Now, Saul is really good at playing the blame game here. Let's break down each one of his excuses as a way of application for ourselves. His first excuse was this. When I saw that the people were scattering from me, Saul starts by pointing the finger at every single turncoat who had abandoned him on the battlefield. Now, we can sometimes make our case for sin in a similar way. Why did you do that? Well, I saw what everyone else was doing, I saw that they weren't obeying God. I saw that they didn't have strength in the Lord. I didn't really want to do it, but nobody stood with me. They abandoned me. I felt alone. The faithlessness of the crowd causes us to think that we can somehow be justified in breaking God's commands, at least just a little bit. But it doesn't matter what the crowds do. It doesn't matter what the larger evangelical world does. It does not matter if everyone else in your local church decides to dishonor the Lord. The crowd's actions do not create exceptions for you to sin. Saul's second excuse was aimed directly at Samuel. Notice he says, And that you did not come within the days appointed. Now let me ask, did Samuel come? Within the days appointed? Yes, he did. This is a layered excuse. On the one hand, it highlights Saul's obedience over most of the prior week. I came here and I did what? I waited. And I waited and I waited and I waited until I just couldn't wait anymore. But let's change the nature of this sin for just a moment because you see, you and I probably don't think that highly or put much significance on the idea of a sacrifice. To the Israelites, if you read this and saw that the king had the audacity to go and sacrifice an animal himself, they would recognize that as a huge misappropriation of his responsibilities. But let's take it in a different direction, something that would offend our sensibilities very much. Let's change the nature of this sin to the sin of murder. What if a man was standing before a judge and he was testifying about whether or not he murdered his boss? And the man said... The judge says, are you guilty? And the man's response is, I, I, I think you should recognize that I worked for him for a long time, many years. And guess what? I would clock in, and I would clock out, and I didn't murder him. And then the next day, I would go into work, and I would clock in, and I would clock out, and I didn't murder him. 
And day after day, I would go in, and for year after year, I went in, and I clocked in, and I clocked out, and I didn't murder him. But I finally just couldn't take it anymore, so I killed him. <laughs> I think my extended track record speaks for itself. Let me ask you, do you think that is going to hold up in court? Obviously not. If you did it, you're guilty. James 1 teaches us that if you break one of God's laws, you are guilty of all of them. In doing this one action, Saul becomes guilty of the entire Mosaic code. Sin is a big deal. Every sin is a big deal, and every time it is a big deal. Don't play the game that says, look, I avoided it for a long time. It's okay for me just to dabble. Don't play the game that says, I've put on a good display of outward conformity to God's rules, so I think that I have somehow earned the right to get away with at least something because of my track record. Sin is sin, no matter how long you wait to commit it. Also, I want you to see that Saul here felt like Samuel and that God had abandoned him, that he wasn't there. God was not watching. God was not present. He did not believe the promise that God had made to him that if you just do what I say, I will protect you and it will go well with you. All of our sin starts the same way. By disbelieving God and disbelieving his promises and disbelieving that even though it can be challenging to honor him, that he will bless it every time. Saul's third excuse is aimed at the forces of the Philistines. He said, and that the Philistines mustered against me at Michmash. Look, I saw them out there. I saw this army of 30,000 chariots and then all these horsemen. And it says that there are a number of soldiers like the sand on the seashore. That's like covenantal language that it speaks about with Abraham. But it's multiple places in the Bible. It speaks of armies in that way as well. And he is using this presence of an external opposition to defend himself. himself. Look how big the enemy was. It's as if God should understand. I'm under a lot of pressure here. He should realize these, these Philistines, they're no joke. Once again, remember this moment because it's going to highlight even more in a couple of chapters what it looks like when you do get battle victory over your enemies and you do give the battle over to the Lord. God is so much more powerful than the Philistines that he takes a small boy and a sling and he defeats them. Saul blamed the Philistines as the reason why he needed to disobey God. Consider what Paul has to say about this kind of thinking in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Could Saul have endured it? Yes, he could. In fact, if you read the text, it seems like he only needed to wait just a couple more minutes before Samuel would have arrived. But instead, Saul made the decision based upon circumstances rather than on the settled promises and the word of God. God is faithful. Saul did not believe it. But look how Saul describes his own actions at the end of verse 12. He says, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Now that is ridiculous. I mean, you and I have probably forced ourselves to do many things that we didn't want to do before. 
In fact, parenting is like an extended series of killing your own will and desires and sacrificing them for the better of someone else. Nobody wants to change diapers. Nobody desires that, but we do it because we love. We do it because we want to serve. We force ourselves to do things sometimes. Saul is saying, look, I, I was obligated. I had to do it. I felt that it was necessary in order for me to gain God's favor. So I took it upon myself and I forced myself to do it. As I said at the outset of the sermon, in this chapter, Saul meets his worst enemy yet, but it's not the Philistine army. That army, I'm sorry, that enemy is Saul himself. Saul was not being forced against his will. He took upon the role of the priesthood. He stepped outside his station. He did it willingly. James 1, 13 through 15 describes the process that happened in Saul's heart like this. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, has conceived, gives birth to death, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Saul performed this sacrifice. He did it, he did it because he wanted to. He was enticed, as it says in James 1, by his own desires. There was nobody to blame but Saul himself. When you sin, there is always going to be this internal struggle that happens in your heart and mind that goes something like this. I know this is bad. I know this is wrong. I know this is sinful. I know this is evil. I know that I shouldn't do it. And then you're going to have this little voice in your head that is going to scream, but and is going to try to fill in the blank with every possible re rationality that you can imagine to say, yes, but it, it, is, it is acceptable in this instance. It is okay for me right now. And then you are either going to give in to your wicked desires, or you are going to walk in the Spirit and not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, before moving ahead, I just want to put another small marker for you here to keep in mind as we are making our way through this book that the biggest thing that sets Saul and David apart is not that one was a sinner and one was sinless. What sets them apart is that one of them repents and the other one doesn't. We're going to hit that a bit harder in a few weeks. But for now, just notice that Saul does not display even the slightest level of repentance or even remorse for his sin in this event. Saul was disqualified from being king because of his sin. But do you know what's even worse than that? Every one of us has been disqualified from heaven because of sin. That is precisely why Jesus came, so that he could save disqualified sinners like you and me. He did not came, come to save those who were well, but for the sick. He did not come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. Jesus came for sinners that he might cleanse every single one of our acts of rebellion against him. And if you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and you are called and capable of living a life of obedience to him. So now we arrive at point number four, Saul's discipline. How does this turn out for him? Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which you, he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. I wonder how often Saul repeated that last sentence in his mind over the rest of his life. 
but now your kingdom shall not continue. I could have just waited 10 more minutes. Could have just waited for that man to walk over the hill. But now, because you have done this thing, your kingdom shall not continue. Now, if you're keeping track, Saul doesn't even make it one full chapter from the time that God said, if you obey me, I will establish you, and if you do not, I will take the kingdom from you. Not even one full chapter, and God rips the kingdom away from Saul, and he's going to set up a different king over a different kind of kingdom. Verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, there's a debate that often happens in the sports world, it's the question of how many championships does a team need in a short period of time in order to be called a dynasty? Like, I, I hear today there's an important game on, on TV. I, I don't know anything about the NFL. In fact, uh, my family are all big Chiefs fan. I grew up in Kansas, and I just found out like two months ago that they've been winning over the last couple of years, and that's a thing. Well, how many times do you have to win in order to be called a dynasty? Well, let me ask a different question. How many kings do you need to have in a row to be called a dynasty? Saul's got one. It's just him. After you, it's over. And Jonathan, who we see is a very godly man, never has a chance of being king because of what Saul rashly decided. He determined God's rules don't apply to me, and that affected his son in a major way. You should know that your sin always has a huge blast radius, and it will affect people that you love in ways that you can't even imagine. Saul's line was erased. They don't just lose the throne. They lose their lives. And their family line is destroyed and in verse 14, it tells us that the person who is going to replace Saul is going to be a man after God's own heart. We're going to dig into that a little more, what that means when we get to chapter 16. But we're, we're of course, going to see that prophecy fulfilled by David. But I want you to see how Paul explains this concept of a man after God's own heart in the New Testament. Acts chapter 13, 22 speaks of Saul's removal and his replacement like this. I'm um, sorry, Paul is... Um, He's preaching a sermon, and in a lot of his sermons, I love that he brings in the historical background. He brings in the Old Testament. He gives them a lot of information, and here he says, And when he had removed him, speaking of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. What does it look like to be a man after God's own heart? He describes it for us here. He gives us a definition. Who will do all my will? But guess what? David does not always do God's will. In fact, later on, he is going to sin grievously, and he is going to have to ask the Lord to create in him a clean heart because that heart that was originally said to be a, a man after God's own heart well, that heart has now been defiled with sin. In Acts chapter 13, Paul goes on to argue in that sermon that Jesus is the greater David and that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all of David's promises. And in doing so, Paul reveals to us that Jesus is actually the man that Samuel was searching for. He is the greater man after God's own heart. 
And that is precisely what God is going to do. He is eventually going to replace Saul, not with a sinful man like David, but with a better king, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is king today, and he remains king on the throne forever. And we are called to simply bow our knee to him and follow him. Let's pray. Our Father God, we give you thanks that you speak through chapters like this of negative examples, negative examples like Saul who revealed to us what it looks like to dishonor you. Lord, I pray that no one here would follow in the footsteps of Saul, that nobody here would turn from you, that nobody here would reject your calling in our life to obey you. Lord, I pray that when we do, however, that none of us would respond to our sin like Saul did but that we would instead be a repentant people, a people with soft hearts who when we are rebuked, we don't make excuses, we just turn to you and plead for forgiveness. For Lord, that is where we find mercy and that is where we find grace. Lord, we thank you that you always are faithful to forgive those who come to you humbly. Lord, let us not be proud like Saul, refusing to repent, but let us be humble that whenever we sin, we would recognize the great Savior and the love that he has for us. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone in the midst here that does not yet know you in a saving way, Lord, that you would, through this passage, reveal that Jesus is a great and good king, that he was perfectly pure and obedient. And I pray, Lord, that, that they would see the sacrifice that Jesus made, the innocent for the guilty, and that you would save them. And we pray that in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.